On Sunday evenings, we've been addressing some topics, some difficulties of things that we have faced in our area. And there's some topics that, in my mind, I would have thought, I'll never have to deal with that with regards to our brethren. But the inspiration of the Bible, the fact that the Bible is God's Word, is something that has been challenged and needs to be discussed. I want to begin by pointing out that Satan is sly. You remember in 1 Peter chapter 5, he said, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion goes about seeking whom he may devour. Satan really would love to destroy the church of Christ. He'd love to be able to do what is necessary to create conflict for us, to make us doubt God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul says, Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. Sadly to say, sometimes we are ignorant of his devices. He's able to pull the wool over our eyes by those smooth talkers. You know, Paul speaks of these in Romans 16 and verse 17. He says to mark or note those who are causing occasions, a defense and stumbling among you. And he says by their smooth words and fair speech, they're able to deceive the hearts of the simple. But you know, he seeks to destroy our confidence in the Word of God, that when you pick up your Bible, do I have God's Word? Let me point out to you in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Going all the way back to the very beginning to Adam and Eve, Satan has said what God has said is not really true. And when you go to Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, and see tempts our Lord, the devil took him to the holy city, put him on or set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. In doing so, the devil was quoting scripture but he was trying to destroy the confidence of Jesus in the Father. Put him to the test. Try him. See if he'll do what he said he will do. Sadly, there are some who are helping the devil in his deeds and what they are teaching. So here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at the definition of inspiration. And it will be my purpose to take you through the Bible to see how it defines itself. Then we're going to see how some have begun to deny the inspiration of Scripture in a very subtle way, and then finally to defend it with the Scriptures from God's Word. Let's begin, first of all, what does inspiration mean? 
You know, there's a lot of different terms that a person might use. Like they would say, oh, I went to the ball game and it inspired me. I have no doubt that it can somehow stir up one's emotions. Is that what inspire means, to stir up the emotions? I'd like to point out to you that the best definitions, in my judgment, can be derived from Scripture. If we just simply let the Bible speak and understand what the Bible is saying. And so I want to take you back to that passage that Brother Bernie read just a few moments ago. And I want to notice a couple of things from this passage. All Scripture. Scripture. We're talking about what we have from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. When you call something Scripture, you're not talking about just any book. You're talking about the book, the book that comes from God, is given by inspiration. Now, I'm going to tell you the Greek word for the word inspired here. It is theopneustos. I know you say, well, that's not important. That word is a compound word. The first part of it is theos, from which we get the word God. Theology, theocratic, all those words built upon that. talks about God. The last part, neustos, is from the word pneuma. You've heard of pneumatic tires. That means they have air in them. So what you're talking about is the very breath that comes from God. That's what the word inspiration means. It means God breathed. All Scripture is God breathed. It comes literally from the mouth of God. Somebody says, I don't know if I still get it all. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of... There's that word again. Scripture as of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Notice again it's Scripture. But then he turns and he says that no prophecy. And then he says for prophecy never... Whenever a man is a prophet, he speaks God's message but it is not just the man who's speaking because in the latter part of verse 21 it says, For holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit superintended, if you will. The original word literally means to carry them along. So as a man who was a prophet was speaking for God, God was carrying, or the Holy Spirit was carrying them along and what they were saying so that it guaranteed that it was God-breathed. Someone says, well, I, I really need a little more. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, and then let's look at verses 12 and 13. And Paul says, but God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. God has revealed... These things, His message to us through the Spirit. The Spirit was the medium, the means by which God got this message to us. The Spirit is the perfect one to do so because the Spirit searches the deep things of God. The Spirit 
Just like the Son knows everything that's within the mind of the Godhead. But you drop down to verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak. Now when you have to say that word we, you've got to ask who's Paul referring to. He's referring to himself. He's referring to these other prophets who are delivering God's message. He says, which man, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, combining spiritual things with spiritual. And if you're reading the American Standard, the word words is inserted there. And that's perfectly correct. Because he says, not in words which man's wisdom teaches. It's the words that the Spirit is teaching. The inspiration that you and I have from the Bible is verbal. That is, the very words themselves are inspired. It's not as if God somehow gave a man a thought and he said, okay, now I'll put it in my own words. No, that's not correct. What is correct is that God's words were put into the mouth of or the pen of a prophet. When Paul wrote the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, he said, For this reason we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of man or word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectively works in you who believe. Paul said, when we came and we spoke to you, when we write to you, you accepted what we were writing, not as the words of men, not as of Paul, but as it is in truth, the word of God. So what does inspiration mean? It means that when you pick up your Bible, those words which you read are literally from the mouth of God, revealed through the Spirit, and that it is the very words themselves that are inspired. Now for just a moment, let me do a little distinction to you to take you back to the modern day. In the modern day, there are three different views about inspiration that are common in our society. There's really more than that, but they fall into three big categories. The liberals, like if you went to Vanderbilt University and you studied there, that's what they're going to teach you. They're going to teach you that the Bible contains the Word of God. And what they would mean by that is, is that there's certain places where people had intuition. They had insight. And so whenever they had insight and they express a great idea, then that's the Word of God. Or maybe somebody was illuminated. That is, they were able to have perceptions that others didn't have. And so they're going to teach you that the Bible contains the Word of God. That reigned supreme among scholars in the late 1800s. And there were some men who fought against it, men like J.W. McGarvey. You may not know, but he wrote a really good book called The Authorship of Deuteronomy in which he challenged that. So there was a new group of people who came along and they referred to themselves as neo-orthodox. The word neo means new, orthodox means the standard or uh, what was accepted. 
And the neo-Orthodox came along and they said the Bible becomes the Word of God. Not that it contains it, but that it becomes it whenever it is used and it is effective. And they said, but the way that you've got to get to it is you have to strip all the myths out of the Bible. That when you get to the Genesis myth, creation, global flood, when you get to the New Testament and you strip out the miracles, yes, and even the virgin birth, then the Bible becomes the Word of God. Only as you use it and it is effective does it become the Word of God. And then there is what is referred to as the conservative view, that the Bible is the Word of God. And that it is not, though somehow there was a mechanical dictation, nor is it a thought concept, but it's verbal. The word plenary means all. Plenary verbal inspiration. But let me point out to you that there's a new denial of inspiration that's very subtle and very deceptive. And I believe the devil's behind it just as much as I believe that he was behind what was said to Eve through the serpent. These people will claim that they believe in the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. Inerrancy means it doesn't make any mistakes. But just like when Paul was writing to Titus, in Titus 1 and verse 16, he said, they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. I can get up here and say, I believe in the inspiration of Scripture. But then I can turn around and say something that destroys the concept that has already been presented to you. Now, for just a few moments, I want to try to explain to you a method that is very current and a lot of people have picked up on. And what they are discussing is, is they emphasize the story of the Bible or the stories of the Bible. And you can say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, the devil would not be success successful unless he used a little bit of truth to try to get you to accept it. And they use this word meta-narrative. And the word meta means all-encompassing. Narrative is the stories. So it's saying that there's this big story out there. And they're saying what you ought to do is concentrate on the big story or on the little stories, but you ought not get hung up on the historical detail. A good example of this is a book that was written by three members of the Lord's Church. They're all professors at Abilene Christian University. The title of their book is God's Holy Fire, The Nature and Function of Scripture. That sounds like a pretty good idea, doesn't it? But when you read their book, I want you to listen to page 100. But what is crucial for the church today is not the raw data of history but of the Exodus and the subsequent events, but the meaning of the story of the Exodus that the Jews and Christians repeated over and over again to their children. What they're saying is, you don't really concentrate on the historical part of it. You just talk about the meaning of the story. And if you talk about, for instance, the creation, it's not important to talk about, was the world created in six literal days? Was it about 6,000 years old? 
ago, years ago, or 10,000 years ago, or was that maybe 6.5 million years ago as Brother Kyle talked about? They would say, you don't concentrate on the global flood. You, you know, that's a message. There's a story to it. And the story is the value of it. John Mark Hicks, who, by the way, was a classmate of mine, wrote a review, a positive review of it for the Christian Chronicle. And here's what he wrote. The story, meta-narrative, is central. And ultimately, biblical hermeneutics, that is how to interpret the Bible, is understanding that story in such a way that it shapes our own stories. This story connects with postmodern readers. Now, for those of you who may not know, postmodern people, they don't like details. They don't like facts. They don't like objective truth. So what you do is you tell stories and you let people relate the stories. You see, they're saying that's what this book is all about. They borrowed this from a man who was fired just a few years ago from Westminster uh, Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And uh, his name is Peter Enns. And here's what Mr. Enns wrote or Dr. Enns wrote. A proper view of inspiration will embrace the fact that God speaks by means of cultural idiom of the authors. Whether it be the author of Genesis and describing origins or how Paul would later come to understand Genesis. Both reflect the setting and limitations of the cultural moment. You might say, well, he's just double speaking there. But what Mr. Enns is trying to do is to try to say, don't get caught up in the details. Now, I'm going to give you one more, and then I'm going to be done with the quoting. On pages 94 and 95, many Christian readers will conclude correctly that the doctrine of inspiration does not require guarding the biblical authors from saying things that reflect a faulty ancient cosmology. And what he's talking about cosmology is the origins of the earth. That means the historical accuracy of the book of Genesis. Going on, if we begin with the assumptions about what inspiration must mean, we're creating a false dilemma and we'll wind up needing to make torturous arguments to line up Paul and other biblical writers with modes of thinking that would have never occurred to them But when we allow the Bible to lead us in our thinking on inspiration, we are compelled to leave room for the ancient writers to reflect and even incorporate their ancient mistaken cosmologies into their own or into their scriptural reflections. Now, folks, what they're saying is what's important is the story. And the historical details are just fluff. Now whether you realize it or not, that's denying the inspiration of Scripture. That's saying that you can't depend upon what Moses wrote in the book of Genesis about the creation of man, nor about the flood. Nor by, for that matter, what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did or said. 
For just a few moments, I'd like to defend what the Bible teaches us. Brother Kyle made mention, I know at least twice, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. But sanctifying your, the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to make a defense or give a defense to everyone who asks the reason of hope that is within you, yet with meekness and fear. We ought to be willing to give this answer, to give this defense of what we believe and why we believe it. There is nothing more fundamental than whether or not the revelation of God is inerrant. In other words, does your Bible have mistakes in it? Does the Bible have errors in it? Now others will say, but this is a good book. Well, if it has errors in it, and those people who wrote it did so and included their errors because they knew better, but they were intending to see, that can't be a good book. If somebody's lying to you and say this is what is true, and then you believe it, he's lied to you. That can't be a good book. But others would say, oh, you know, they just really didn't know better. If they're deluded, does it change anything? How can it be a good book if someone who didn't know what they were talking about wrote it? How could I depend upon it at any point in time? If I can't depend upon the historicity of what is written in the book of Genesis, or First and Second Chronicles for that matter, then how can I depend upon what is written in the book of Psalms, Proverbs, Acts, or First Corinthians? This is really a battle for the minds of men. Either you're going to battle and let the devil win and let those people who are against the Lord's church, or either you're going to stand with the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, Paul said, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in God. For the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We're trying to battle for minds, men's minds so they can understand the truth. Well, let me point out to you that the Bible claims to be the Word of God. If we go, for instance, to Joshua chapter 3 and verse 9 and 2 Samuel 23 and verse 2, we're going to see it explicitly stated. But do you realize the words, thus says the Lord, is found over 400 times in the Bible? We read, Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Or 2 Samuel 23, 2. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. I could multiply many, many, many times where the Bible claims to be the Word of God. But you know what? So does the Book of Mormon. It claims to be the Word of God. And so does the Quran for the Muslim. He would say, I believe that's an inspired book as well. You see, the truth is, in order to be inspired, a book has to be beyond human production. It has to reflect characteristics which are so supernatural 
that you cannot say that this book was produced by man. Well, for just a moment, and I will tell you, there's a lot more that time could be spent with this, but I really just want to hit these points. Predictive prophecy. Where a prophecy is made and then it is fulfilled and it's, su it's such of a nature that it's not just an educated guess. And let me point out to you, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 through 22. The Bible doesn't dodge this issue. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know whether the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. There are people who will tell you, God's speaking by me. And they'll make prophecies. And when those prophecies don't come true, you know God didn't speak that. Let me give you a good example. The prophet Isaiah. He prophesied around 700 B.C. generally. Could be a year or two either way. Around 700 B.C. And the prophet Isaiah, looking forward is going to talk about the fall of the Babylonian Empire. Not even in power now. Over a hundred years later, and not only is he going to talk about the fall of the Babylonian Empire, he's going to call the name of the man who's going to lead that. Isaiah 45 and verse 1, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, To Cyrus whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. His name was called a hundred years in advance. Folks, the Book of Mormon didn't do that. In fact, the Book of Mormon, if you study it, will tell you that the uh, temple would be built... In Missouri, and you know what? Still hadn't been built. You go to the Quran and you will find all kinds of contradictions and stuff. The Bible is a book that demonstrates plainly that predictive prophecy is there, and not one of them is missing. Then you have the unity. Do you realize the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, those 66 books, 39 in the Old, 27 in the New, was penned, that is the human men that the Holy Spirit used to write, was 40 different men over a 1,400 year span using three different languages, Hebrew and Aramaic in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. And yet there is a unity of message from the beginning to the end, the glorification of God through the, His Son, Jesus Christ, and through His body, the church. There's a uniqueness to the Bible that it has consistency with known science and history. You see, here's a problem. 
even when present day people question what the Bible says, they're the ones who have to back up and say, well, the Bible's right and I was wrong. I could give you a number of examples, but archaeology is something that I really enjoy studying. For many years, the scholars, and I put that in quotations, said that the Bible was wrong because it spoke about the Hittites. Because they said, we've never found any Hittites. Guess what happened? They found Hittites. Critics said, oh, we're wrong on that one. What about a generation or two ago when people used to bleed people? Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 speaks about life being in the blood. What about people who, as Brother Kyle mentioned the other night, about believed that the earth was flat? Isaiah 40 verse 22. Just very quickly. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Wow, that's pretty strong statement. Or you go to Isaiah 40, 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. It's not a square, not a flat plane. And then the preservation of it. Do you know how many people have tried to destroy the Bible? You can go back to some of those early emperors of the 2nd century and 3rd century. Diocletian is one of them. They thought all we've got to do is destroy the Word of God and, or the Bibles and people will quit worshiping God. What happened to those emperors? They're dead and gone, but God's Word's still here. What about during the period of time in which men like William Tyndale and others tried to translate the Bible into the language of the common man and they were fought against? In fact, they were persecuted. Their persecutors are dead and gone, but God's Word is still here. And it's just like Isaiah 55, verse 11. So shall my word that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's Word has survived. You want me to tell you something else? All these people now who are trying to chip away at the foundation of the Word of God, if the Lord allows this world to continue, they will fail as well. You see, I don't want any of you to be influenced by these people who are trying to destroy your confidence. Jesus prayed in his prayer in John 17 to the Father, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In John 8 and verse 32, he said, And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And then in James 1 and verse 21, he said, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Don't let anyone persuade you that you cannot trust your Bible. You can, and you can trust that it is from God. And yes, you may find a difficult passage, but there are answers for each and every one of them. 
And what you and I need to do is to make sure that we don't let someone come along and persuade us, oh, well, just listen to the story. Forget the details. No, the details are important as well. And here's what the details are. You are lost without God. You have sinned and violated His will. But God still loves you and God wants to save you. But He does that by means of a revealed pattern. Hebrews 8 and verse 5 speaks about the pattern that was shown to Moses on the mountain. God is a pattern that involves believing in Jesus Christ, His Son, John chapter 8 and verse 24. It involves our repenting of the sins we have committed, Luke chapter 13, verses 3 and 5. It involves confessing our faith in Christ as the unit did in Acts 8 and verse 37 and then being baptized for the remission of our sins in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Yes, you see, God has revealed Himself to us and He has told us what He wants us to do. If you're not a Christian, we beg and plead with you to be obedient to the Word of God. If you're a child of God and you know that your life is out of step, you need to be restored, we beg you to come as well while together we stand and sing.